0: Spread the love with WMFA merch, items designed to spark creative vibes for you and the artists in your life. Shop at wmfapodcast.com slash merch. That's wmfapodcast.com slash m-e-r-c-h. Welcome to WMFA, a podcast about why and how we write. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm speaking with Courtney mom, whose latest book, Before and After the Book Deal, a writer's guide to finishing, publishing, promoting, and surviving your first book, is out now from Catapult. Courtney is the author of the novels Costa Alegre, Touch, and I Am Having So Much Fun Here Without You, and the chapbook Notes from Mexico. Her writing and essays have been widely published in such outlets as BuzzFeed, The New York Times, Oh! The Oprah Magazine, Interview, and Modern Loss. She is the founder of the learning collaborative The Cabins, and she also works as a product namer and publishing consultant from her home in Connecticut. Before and after the book deal is as exhaustive as its title suggests. A generous and comprehensive collection of wisdom from both Courtney and a diverse community of authors, agents, editors, and publicists. Each contributor is candid about the myriad scenarios that an author can encounter, from which editor you should choose to the number of zeros involved in a realistic advance, what to pack for book tour, to what happens if you die before your book is published. It's a necessary addition to any writer's library. Here, Courtney and I discuss navigating the business side of writing a book while maintaining your sanity, from dealing with your, my apologies, personal brand, to setting goals that actually matter to you. We also talk about Courtney's latest novel, *Costa Alegre," a dreamy epistolary tale narrated by 15-year-old Laura Calloway, a character inspired by Peggy Guggenheim, daughter of the wealthy art collector Peggy Guggenheim. Laura is along for the ride as her mother smuggles her avant-garde artist friends out of 1937 Europe. Materially privileged but emotionally neglected, she fills her diary with longing, curiosity, and art. Across both books, Courtney's writing is astute, energetic, and, as those already familiar with her work would expect, very funny. You can hear a bonus segment from our conversation, in which we discuss what advice Courtney most wished she had received as a debut author, by joining the WMFA Patreon community at patreon.com WMFA podcast and pledging just $2 a month.
1: When we run out of the big questions, will my book, how will it be reviewed? Will it sell? Well, then there's all these little questions that start to eat at us. So I I wanted it all, all in there. And
0: I thought maybe a good place to start, you know, a thing that I kept thinking about as I was reading, being someone who is working on her first manuscript, is how refreshing it was to kind of have the aperture widen a little bit from this fixation that the first book is like the be all end all of your life and your career. And it can feel so much like that when you're working on it. And when you're in it for such a long time, Um, I just wanted to open that up and see, you know, see if that was something that resonated with you when you were back when you had still none under your belt.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, especially in the United States, we have a little bit of a fetish with the debut writer especially the debut novel. There's this sort of mythological creature that I think we all believe in. That's the, you know, the New, the, the debut novelist who comes out and hits the uh, New York Times bestseller list right away. And, and then what? The thing that I found, not so much for myself, because to be honest, writing is a coping mechanism for me. I mean, you could take my house away from me and I'd be writing on bark or something, you know? But a lot of my colleagues, sort of regardless of the amount of success that they had or the perceived amount of success that they had or did not have with their first book it came as a shock to many people that they were meant to write another one even if they were under a second book contract i think sometimes of course there's exceptions right there there are some very organized people out there who have an idea of the next three projects they're doing but there's a lot of people who you know so many of us dream of getting book deals and we get them and we just think of the debut and everything seems to hinge upon how it does. But actually, it's supposed to be a long game. Even our publishers, in theory, they want us to keep writing books. It isn't really explained to us, but sort of one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was to say, okay, it's around this period of time that you should start working on something else. It's around this period of time where, especially if your book does slightly well, that your agent might say to you, hey, now would be a good time to try and sell your next manuscript. But that might come as a shock to someone who didn't even know to start working on their manuscript. You know, they've been spending all this time refreshing their social media feeds, waiting for some, like, great piece of news. I'm not making fun, you know, I've been there. There's a lot of examples, like I think of, I think of Tony Doerr all the time, who wrote All the Light We Cannot See. Um, and he told me himself in our interview for this book that, If he met 10 people at an event, 10 of them thought that that was his debut. It was similar with Chloe Benjamin, who's The Immortalist, you know, hit the New York Times bestseller list right away. But that wasn't her debut. Sure, I think it's great if you have a splashy debut and lots of opportunities come your way. But to be honest, especially if you get published on the younger side, you might not be ready for those opportunities. You might not know what to say no to. That's sort of a skill that's developed over time. And there's some other contributors in the book who had so much success with their debut that they, they didn't have time to work on their second manuscript. They truly didn't have time. You know, it was a, these were tours that lasted like a year or two years. And then they sort of felt abandoned and like didn't really remember how to write because they'd been touring for so long. And I often think that the best thing we can hope for is the opportunity to publish again.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it makes me think the author, Lisa Ko, who's in the book and who's been on the show as well. Um, you know, first of all, her path to to that novel, to to The Leavers, which was, I think, seven years, ten years. But when I when I interviewed her for the show, she said that one of the most meaningful pieces of advice that she got from a mentor of hers was you have to, in order to write the book you want to write, you have to become the person you want to mm. be to write the book. Oh, that's good. That's good advice. Yeah. So, yeah, speaking to that idea of like not everything, nor should everything be bound up in this process. I want to jump back to an observation you made, because I think you're absolutely right about the kind of fetishization of the debut novelist. And I'm trying not to be cynical and tie it to the like MFA cultural, like, you know, industrial complex. But sure. But I do think it's true. And I'm so glad that you mentioned in the book, the the things that do get so much attention that can make people feel like, oh my God, is everybody out here getting million dollar book deals? And like what you know No, the is no. <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> right. But like you you know that you you mentioned the Entertainment Weekly essay and I was like I was like, wait, I need to reread this and I went back to it and it's like, yep, there it is. Like this oh well she's beautiful and that how you know it's right. It seems to become less a question of the business of writing and more of just like the marketability of, of you and and that's got to be a weird experience.
1: A hundred percent. And I mean, you know, what happened to the idea that writers were introverts who weren't great public speakers, who kind of shut themselves up in their citadels and write their manuscripts and mail it off. And then they write the next one. You know, that, that's like in the, in the mind, I think, of the, the publishing industry, that's like an extinct animal. I've been teaching a lot this past week and people ask this a lot. Like, you know, they've got dread in their eyes and they say, how important is the platform? Well, it's important and it's not important. I think that most acquiring editors and acquiring houses at this point, they are looking for the people who have a really engaged platform. And by that, I mean number of followers on whatever whatever social media feeds they have. But honestly, the more you get engaged in that stuff, the the newsletters and the giveaways and the regular posts and the the inspirational quotations, the less you're writing. Sometimes it's fun, but it's hard. It becomes really hard to gauge, especially if you have some level of success online and people are writing you privately or um, complimenting you. It, It does become a bit addictive.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: Like you have all these candy pushers in your writing space who are like, sorry to bother, here's a lollipop. Sorry to bother, here's like a decadent hot chocolate. And you don't want to be rude and not reply to these people, but it, it does become, you know, if you have the, the sort of a moment of pause while you're working on your manuscripts and your mind wanders, it's so easy to think, oh, well, let me get a hit by checking in on whatever it is. Absolutely. right? Your drug of choice, <laughs> Twitter, Instagram. And then you go to, down the rabbit hole and you've completely you can't get back to that, I don't really like this word, but the flow, mm-hmm. right, that you had. So I really don't know what to say about this thing right now, the pressure to be a brand and an author, other than it is, it exists and it is really hard to contend with. And I don't think that you can even prepare yourself for it because you don't have control over how your book does. Mm-hmm. You know, I see this with a lot of memoirist friends they were ready to go out and kind of defend the subject of their book because they'd been, in some cases, um, researching it for a long time, working on it for a long time. They'd sort of talked it out, you know, and, and they thought that they were ready for this thing, but then they were absolutely unprepared for the onslaught of people who wanted to talk to them about their things at book events or would send them email confessions, you know, with heavy stuff, right? In some cases, disclosing... Um, trauma, abuse. And what do you do with that? Right, right. You know, if your brand all of a sudden is that you've disclosed mm-hmm. sexual abuse, it seems somehow wrong to not open your arms a little bit for your readers, but you're not actually a therapist or a psychologist. I mean, that's not what most memoirs intended, probably, right? But then they find themselves in that position. So how do you negotiate what? is the right amount of sort of respect and time to show your readers and how to take time for yourself. It's really hard. I don't nobody has the answer and the answer is a moving target really.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then you know, especially with with something like the situation that you just described, how does that affect you when you get back to the page having known that that's on the other side of it? Like does it censor what you want to do next.
1: Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, I talk in the book, um, I have a lengthy interview with Alex Marzano-Lesnovich and they say, and I'm sharing this because they admit it, admit it in the book, you know, they say, I had to get a therapist like two days after the book came out because Alex went to events and the things that people were disclosing to them in the signing line was too much.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, there is a lot of advice in the book about this, which seems very valuable, very different, kind of making connection with people, you know, when you get when you are doing these events, kind of trying to to find everybody's humanity. But there's a difference between that and kind of becoming a receptacle for all of that.
1: Yeah, 100 percent. I mean, this availability question, I find myself negotiating that right now with event requests. Partly you want to say yes to everything, right? It's so nice to be invited somewhere. But then all of a sudden you look at your calendar and number one, you haven't left yourself any writing time. You haven't left yourself any time to like veg out on the couch, to be with your family, but there's always this nagging voice that says, well, that one event that you turned down could have been the event where you meet, you know, a producer who wants to turn your book into a movie or you meet the person who's connected to the celebrity book club and so you will find yourself saying, yes, 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 a lot. You know, Nathan Hill talks about this in, in the book, because I noticed I was like, this fellow has literally been on book tour for a year. And not like you go to a region and come home. I mean, it's back to back for a year. And he said, like, he just thought that if he said no, the invitations would just stop right away.
0: And I think that's so much about what's so valuable and refreshing about this book is like, there's a lot of this stuff that I think we do kind of approach for a few different reasons. I think we tend to as writers and as artists generally approach as a little bit of a dirty subject. Like, I think like the branding thing, you know, it's a slightly different beast, but like marketing is very difficult for me. Like the idea that, um, you know, some, uh, I I'm blanking on who right now, but somebody says in the book about a speaking agent, they're like, I, I felt like if it if I was meant to have one, they would come find me. Right. And I think that a lot of us kind of have that idea of like, oh, well, there's something dirty about sort of selling the work. Like, you know, and that's a classic conflict, of course, like, you know, art art and commerce. But but I think that it, it like kind of lifting the lid on a lot of that And letting people be a little bit more anonymous, you know, a lot of the industry professionals are a little anonymous, which is very helpful to just kind of let let some of the sunlight in on these on these issues. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I like the idea of sunlight. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, one thing that also is very striking reading this book, I think, is what a what a generous community of writers exists and what a generous community of writers you've included here who are so honest and reflective, and I guess maybe that brings us to the process of getting the book rolling in the first place, but but especially when you get to that point of of seeking out these other voices, how, how you went about that.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, that was the greatest pleasure of the book, was that everyone was so generous and really eager to talk about these things, which surprised me, because some of them were quite taboo, and a lot of people didn't ask to be anonymous or anything. The way I went about the process is I I basically sat down and I wrote the table of contents first, which I did kind of just revisiting my own personal experience. And I just tried to remember every single worry, uh, point of pride, fear, anxiety that i would had, wrote those out. And then I started kind of doing informal surveys with other people to see if what their timelines were in terms of like anxiety and doubt. And then I went in and started dropping in um, placeholders of either the exact person that I thought would be perfect to interview for that section or the kind of person, for example, with the section on whether or not you should accept a two book deal. I remember writing, you know, in bullet points, like open with someone who had a positive experience, close with someone who had a negative experience. But I I protected myself against only filling the book with my friends by making sure that for every three people that, you know, were in my circle, I was adding one person who was actually a stranger to me, um, whose work perhaps I I wasn't even familiar with. I hope that allowed us to have a book that's diverse and exhaustive and hopefully inclusive. And then um, once everything was in place, and the book had its shape and all the content was there. It wasn't copy edited yet. Um, I sent all the contributors their contributions to make sure that they felt comfortable with the lead up to it and what was said after. You know, there was about a year, maybe even more, between some of these interviews and when the book came out. And so people who were complaining about the academic job market, have I know that a lot of them have gone on and found jobs. But I didn't want every single anecdote to be followed by like, oh, but so-and-so's no longer worried because now they're on tenure track. Because when you're in the heat of the moment and you feel completely alone in whatever it is that you're worried about, I think it really is, there's, there's value to hearing that there's all these other people out there, talented people with publishing credits who are in the same boat. And I didn't want it to feel like there was a boat that you were in and then a really fast boat speeding by you.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I and I do think the overall tone hits that. It's positive but and it and it's certainly conversational and funny, but it's realistic, you know, it's like you're probably going to be fine. You you might not. You're probably going to be fine. You know, you mentioned the exhaustiveness. I just want to like point out for folks who haven't gotten their hands on the book yet. The table of contents coming up with that alone, I feel like is remarkable because you just look through it and it's like everything you could possibly am I wasting my time and money in this MFA program? Uh, is my rejection really a rejection? What if the offer sucks? You know, the social media announcements. Yeah,
1: the one I remember fondly was, what if I die before my book comes out? Right. I remember my agent saying to me, like, are you kidding me? This does not need to be here. And then I thought about it. And I thought, I specifically remember, like, I was so excited about my debut. And also, I'm the... I'm the Um, breadwinner in my family, I remember thinking, oh my God, what happens if I die? I wasn't like actively worried about it, but it was an outcropping of my anxiety. And I started asking some other people and they all said, oh, no, no, I think about this all the time, (laughs) specifically with debuts. That pretty much taught me that anytime there was something that could perhaps be seen as slightly superficial, like what to pack if you go on book tour. I was like, I'm including all of it. All of it. Often it's like, when we run out of the big questions, will my book? How will it be reviewed? Will it sell? Well, then there's all these little questions that start to eat at us. So I, I wanted it all, all in
0: there. Right. Well, and I think it's so important too, and so valuable what you address about finances because you do hear these horror stories of I forget where this essay was maybe medium do you know what I'm talking about the essay that people got all kind of it was like oh god a flame on twitter oh, the one
1: the one yeah it was like how how I burned through four hundred thousand dollars yes pretty yeah pretty quickly something like that
0: yeah and like it's extreme but you're you you see how it could maybe happen to you you know you spend so much time in a very different stratosphere
1: it was funny because I'd sent that article like the day it came out, I'd sent it to my agent and you know what? She responded to me. She said, how could anyone assume that their second book would get more than their first? And I actually called her and I was like, Rebecca, Oh my God, all writers assume that, you know, Right. I write that in the, I write about it in the book that you can't make these assumptions. But of course, everyone assumes that because no one is telling us otherwise, Right. no one's telling us otherwise that like your book might come out, might not do so good. And then you assume you're going to get the same advance. And then they say, surprise, you're just getting a box of books this time. Because (laughs) right? um, I think it's hard to read an article like that because everyone assumes that the woman just received a $400,000 check. When, of course, the truth is, that she would have been receiving $25,000 here. Maybe seven months later, she gets another $25,000. When you take off the IRS and the 15% for the Asian, that's still real, real money. Now, in New York City, though, that, that can go very quickly. I am an incredibly careful person. I am a pessimist. I assume the worst. So you have to, like, twist my arm to get a celebratory drink on pub day because I'm like the next book sprout, you know, I'm sure the sales are terrible. So I should just stay home and like bring a six pack into my own house. Um, I'm really, really careful, but there are a lot of people out there who aren't, that's not the primary reason, but was one of the reasons that I thought, okay, someone needs to spell this out for people because it's not taking place at the MFA level, which I think is a travesty, honestly, and a massive disservice to not just future creative writers, but future teachers, people just don't understand that they're going to come out of their MFA program begging for adjuncting jobs and like what that means that they're going to earn. I think it's so important to talk about money and it's, it's considered so gauche and taboo. And I've been doing all these lectures and and talks now that the book's out and people, when I start talking about money, Oh my gosh, everyone sort of tightens up and they look, at first, they look super embarrassed for me, and then, when they realize that i'm I'm like sharing this of my own free will, they settle down, and you can see something really important happening that they're realizing like, "Oh my God, right, I need to rethink things a little bit
0: and you know to your point, I think too, as I glean from preparing for our call, you like me are self-employed beyond even your writing. Oh yeah, definitely. Which, which I think is, is very helpful to kind of understand. I know that lobbying to put a value on my skill sets that aren't creative. I mean, I'm speaking too strictly like, cause I still do copywriting communications and things, but you know, putting a value on skill sets that aren't literary, um, has really helped me see everything differently.
1: Well, it's so, it's so important because aside from just filling in, you know, plugging in the financial holes that crop up in your life, the the life expenses that we all have. Aside from that, just having a set of skills that you can fall back on if the writing isn't going well, if you're just not feeling good about your writing, if you're depressed, it's a lot of pressure to put all the eggs in the basket of like creative writing, (laughs) right? It's a tough market. And again, even big book deals, you know, and by big, I'm not talking like the major, you know, half million dollars, but $100,000, $200,000. $100,000, $200,000. Depending on where you are in your life, especially if you have dependents, even if you're careful, that's not going to last forever. Hopefully it lasts you through the writing and sale of your second book. Then then if you start getting into that rhythm, you can feel a little bit more protected. But things happen. like Your editor might change houses and you get stuck with an editor who just doesn't believe in the book and they don't put as much work behind it. I don't mean to scare people, but I do think... If you have a day job, I wouldn't quit it until like a year and
0: a half after your books come out, just to
1: protect also against kind of an emotional collapse, which happens to a lot of people.
0: Something that that really stuck out to me, and I would love to hear you talk about this a little more, is this is in the after the book deal section. You're talking about publication and talking about, you know, all the, all the rocky paths that can be laid out after the book goes out. And you said... um you write, that's why it's so important to establish your own definition of success before your book comes out, a benchmark you can meet on your own terms, a goal that isn't dependent on how other people's books perform. And I would just love to hear you talk a little bit about how that definition has evolved for you over time and kind of what, what you, if you're willing to talk about it, what, what that looks like for you now. Yeah,
1: no, this is, this is something I think about all the time because it's a shame how easily our pride in our work And then our achievement can be taken away by the realization of what other people are getting or what we think they're getting. You know, I had a friend who debuted on the New York Times bestseller list. Her first thought was like elation. And then her second thought is, well, how long till I fall off? Right. With my first book, I didn't even know what to hope for. I had no idea what good sales numbers were, what bad sales numbers. I had no idea how many, what the first print run would be. It wasn't until good things started to happen You know, like my editor called and said, we're going into a second print run. And I recognized, oh, I should think about print run. The first book was like a a nice little training ground. I didn't know how many people to expect at events. It was wildly disparate. So it was the second book for me that was really hard. Because my first book, I'm having so much fun here without you, ended up being um, an unexpected, like, success. I got amazing press. And so then when the second book came out, I had these expectations. It came out, like, right after Trump was elected, and fiction at that point was down at 45%. And nothing was selling. I mean, even the, the, ma- the big, big, big deal in ha- you know, house names I like, were having a really hard time. That's actually when I started writing this book. But it's also when I started thinking like, the center's not holding. You know, these things that I had decided were markers of success aren't mine to claim again. And I can't even rightly aim for them because it's completely out of my control. So then I didn't know what to look for. And it wasn't until like recently with my third book, Costa Alegre, that came out in July of 2019. Now with that book, it's with an independent press. It's with Tin House. I got a really, really modest advance. Um, my agent warned me, you know, this could be a very quiet book. You know, you should be prepared for that. So I tried to have no expectations, but I found myself getting injured because I'd hoped with that book, like it got such good reviews. I thought, wow, well, I hope it will make some of the end of the year, you know, the best of lists. And I thought maybe I had a chance at it getting long listed for, you know, one of the various awards that it had been submitted for. And those things didn't happen, but I had matured enough that I thought I had already decided to myself, like pick something, something's going to happen and hold on to that thing something that no one else can take away and that no one else can have so that you're not going to go on Instagram one day and see that this person had the same thing. And what that ended up being was that I was contacted by a member of the family. I was actually contacted by Peggy Guggenheim. Uh, The story is written from the point of view of Peggy Guggenheim's daughter. And I was contacted by a man who, um, an older man who wrote me and said, you know, I read about your book in the New York Times. I really want to read it, but I think it will be painful for me. My father abandoned me and my family when I was a little boy for Pagin. He ran off with Pagin. His dad was a famous French artist. And um, we started corresponding, and he ended up reading the book, and he told me, you know, I have spent, and he's about 82, and he said, I've spent my entire life since I was six years old hating this woman, just despising her. And, and your book gave me compassion for this woman. And I ended up going and staying with his family. I and mean, it was an amazing, amazing experience. No one else can have that happen to them. He ended up giving me a painting that his father had done. It was absolutely astonishing. Oh, my
0: God. Yeah. And
1: we're still in touch and have formed a, a very strong relationship. And I just think that's the thing. To me, that was like, okay, though there's other markers of success. Like, it was, sure, it would have been really nice to get an award for this book, but this thing, like this connection I made, is so important that I, I can feel in my stomach that like in the dark moments when I don't believe in my work, don't feel valued or whatever it is. I will think back on this and I have proof. I have proof in the form of this painting that like my work connected with someone in such a strong manner, that is a big, big deal.
0: Yeah, that's an incredible story. Thank you so much for sharing that. And, I, I, and it really speaks to, you know, I made this note At one point as I was reading so many of these pieces of advice for me, even the ones that are, you know, very practical, just really came back to me this idea of always keeping at the front of your focus why you write in the first place.
1: I think it's good to have goals that force you to stay engaged with either the writing community or with someone outside of your house just to guard against depression to be honest. And, and so another goal I'd set myself with Costa Alegre was, and this one was a little out of my control, but I said to myself, I would do everything I can. I want this book to be published in Mexico because the book takes place in Mexico. And so I said, I'm going to start taking Spanish lessons. This was like a year and a half ago. And I hope one day to have the opportunity to sort of promote the book in Spanish in Mexico and Just yesterday, I got an email inviting me. So it is coming out in Mexico. And I got an email inviting me to do press conferences in Mexico City. And I'm just so proud. I'm so proud. You know, I put the hard work in like, oh, that's incredible. I don't know how smoothly it's going to go in Spanish, but whatever, I'll do my best. And I'm just proud of that. And that to me is a big success.
0: Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Congratulations! Thank you. <laughs> I would love to talk a little bit about about Costa Lecrae if if you're up for it. I know if you're in the in the other book mode, it can might be hard to switch. Um, no, no, I'm I'm I'm, I'm batting. For okay. <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I loved it. And, you know, as is always true, I think of Tin House books, I love it as an object. Like, it's such a beautiful thing. I know. They did such a good job. Such a good job. I, I granted, don't know much about Peggy Guggenheim beyond kind of the broad strokes of her as a cultural figure, but I didn't realize she had a daughter at all. And I've read about... um read interviews in which you talked about coming to this project and your research process for it. And I'm always very interested in people's like nuts and bolts, like how do you keep notes? How do you organize things? And, and I'm very interested in your, in your research process for this.
1: I loved my research process and I'm, I'm using it right now. I think I'll always use this process. What I did was, I mean, it was happenstance. I had just picked up um, Peggy Guggenheim's memoir because they had it in the library facing out, like cover out. And I never read it. And I thought, Gosh, I bet that's quite a, you know, ride. I was at a phase where this was post-touch, so I was sort of fishing around for new projects. I thought I had one, and I was reading this book. It's a pretty hefty book, and she but she mentions so Peggy Gunheim, famous art collector, American-born, but she lived most of her life in Europe, and was collecting work in between the two world wars, and um, you know, she mentioned her daughter maybe once or twice in passing in this book, but her daughter, which already you have Peggy, Peggy, and then little, little Peggy, right? Um, yearned to be an artist. I mean, identified as an artist, but I found that out not in the book. You know, she had just mentioned her daughter, and then I thought, gosh, I, I've never heard of this woman, and I googled her, and a couple of things happened. Her photo cropped up, and she's stunning. She's really a beautiful woman, a young woman, and that was noteworthy because. Peggy Guggenheim was obsessed with her appearance, really thought, truly believed that she was just an ugly, ugly person, Um, had an eating disorder, sort of the whole package. So to have a blonde daughter, this sort of picture of, she just looks so nubile and whatnot, was striking. Then the second thing I discovered was that her daughter killed herself young. She had four boys. Um, She was a mother. She was actually my age. And then, of course, that she had been a painter all her life. And so then I thought, I looked into what was going on when she was a teenager, and I saw that that's when her mother was helping these artists get out of World War II Europe. And I imagined, oh, my God, can you imagine being a teenager? Like, you're yearning to be an artist. Your mother doesn't give you the time of the day. And you're living with, a, like, Man Ray and Leonore Carrington. Like, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> and so my research process, so then I completely pivoted, and I was like, I have to write about this young woman and I just filled up, I had all these Muji, I'm obsessed with these Muji black notebooks. I always get the exact same type and shape. Oh,
0: I always get the exact same Muji notebooks, not the same ones, but yes, all about Muji notebooks. I mean, yeah,
1: same notebook and I filled them all up with notes. And then when I felt like I had enough material, I went back with this yellow, giant yellow crayon. I have, I say giant because it's like, it's diamond shaped. I don't know. I got it for my kid and, I stole it. So it's like toddler hand size. And then I highlighted within my own notes, everything that felt salient, like, or weird enough that I could use it in some way. And then I took only the yellow notes and I transcribed them onto these massive pieces of watercolor paper. And then I did the same thing. I went through those and I yellow highlighted and then I would make another piece of paper. So over the process of maybe seven or eight months, I distilled and distilled and distilled until ultimately what happened was I memorized everything that was the weirdest and the strangest or the most upsetting. So when I sat down to write the book, which is written as a diary from um, a fictionalized Pagin's 15 year old point of view, I, I had everything memorized. And I actually was able to write as a diary, you know, as if this had happened to me. So it was a really enjoyable process because I just refused. Once I'd yellow highlighted all these journals, I refused to let myself go back and see if I missed anything. I just trust my initial instincts You know, it's very fictionalized historical fiction. and I didn't allow myself to get bogged down by the research. So it was really a joyful experience. I loved writing that book.
0: That makes so much sense, what you're describing, because it is like... There's a very weird atmosphere about it and in a wonderful way. I know weird is kind of like a nothing word, but like, you know, like yeah. Julie Button's blurb on the on the cover is that you don't read it so much as dream it. And I feel like that, that really is true. Like, it's just sort of this thing that you swallow. Yeah. You know, she's a worldly kid and she's got a lot of, of very perceptive qualities, but she's still a young mind.
1: Yeah. I mean, I thought a lot about the syntax of someone in her circumstance who who was... Overly educated in some ways because her wealth, you know, with her mom dragging her around the world, um, and she's surrounded by all these really famous people. Um, so she would have been exposed to very high level intellectual conversation and sort of avant garde ideas and theories. But she wasn't, she was underschooled, you know, but she'd be in school and then her mom would take her out. She'd be in boarding school and then her mom would take her out. So I played around a little bit trying to find the syntax of someone who sounded privileged and in one way educated and then in, on the other hand, like undereducated and, and quite naive. And also I wanted her syntax to sound odd in the way that someone who's raised among people in um, speaking many different languages sounds
0: odd. I want to kind of abruptly switch gears as we wind down because I just have a few more questions. don't want to take up too much time. But um, one thing I would love to hear you talk about, and, and this gets addressed in various ways throughout the new book, Before and After the Book Deal, is this sense of building a community and building a writerly education in the kind of more DIY fashion that you've done it. Because it's not, you know, obviously the show is called WMFA. I don't have an MFA either. That's always something that I struggle with, like less so now. But even still, every six months or so, I'm like, I don't know. should I, Do I need an MFA? Can you just talk about like sort of how you how you built that kind of infrastructure? Uh, absolutely. I'd be happy to. And, and so I don't have an MFA. I
1: also did not major in English in college. I mentioned that because um, many creative writers do, you know, if they do go to college. One thing I want to say up front is that I think one of the best things someone can do before they even consider an MFA program is save up for one of these summer writers' conferences. I think Tin House has an excellent one. They also offer a winter program now. Of course, there's Breadloaf. Both are hard to get into, but um, Wesleyan Writers' Conference. I mean, they're they're all over the country. Sewanee. Those conferences have such incredible faculty, and they are a microcosm of the longer two-year program mushed into or smushed rather into five days or in the case of bread loaf, you know, almost 10 days. And if you can take that level of intensity and scrutiny and being around, you know, such an inspirational group of people and you need more, honestly, you can just do two a summer or something. Like maybe inversely, you might not like the workshop experience, and I think it's better to realize that in a five day summer program than in a two year MFA that's required some investment. Um as for building my own MFA, I lived in France most of my twenties because of the aforementioned, you know, major in translation. I'd moved to France and I was working as many things, but a translator. By the time I moved back to the United States, I was maybe 26 or 27 years old. I had a novel I wanted to sell, but I had no contacts, none. I didn't have a single writing friend. I had no idea what to do. But at that point, I I was married. I just, I guess I'm a homebody. I I didn't want to go to, I didn't even want to do a low res MFA. I just didn't, I didn't want to do it, but I did want community. So I ended up, we lived in the Berkshires in Massachusetts, which is a fairly rural area. And I ended up. Sort of serendipity. I got a um, part time job offer that would require me to be at a branding agency three nights a week in New York and then I could come home to Massachusetts. And so I thought, I'm going to take this job. You know, I imagine it would be like a six month contract or something. For every night that I'm in New York, I'm going to go to one reading series and I will introduce myself like by hand, you know, shake someone's hands and properly introduce myself to one person at every single reading series I go to. And I did that. For three months and in the New York community you know you do that for nine nights and like you've met them you've met them all
0: <laughs> you've met the gay
1: <laughs> I just kept showing up so all of a sudden a lot of people were like oh she must be a new kid on the MFA block and I started getting invited to read myself I mean I have to admit I, I when I set my mind to something I can be extroverted and brave Not, not maybe not everyone could do this but I did it all of a sudden I felt like I knew some of the people on the mastheads of the magazines I'd been applying to. So they were still rejecting me, but there was more feedback this time because they felt bad because they knew me and before they didn't know me all of a sudden I sort of cultivated these relationships. And to this day, you know, the, the a lot of these people are, are dear friends that I can turn to for advice and blurbs <laughs> because a lot of the people I were meeting, they were emerging writers, you know, but um, I put myself out there. That being said, I had to decamp. To a major urban setting to do that. I don't think I could have done it if I just sat in Massachusetts. Another thing I did that year, that very year, was I went to AWP for the first time, and I was just really—I don't want to say aggressive, but quite energetic about meeting people, trying to make friends, trying to find community. That—that's something I think it's worth saving up for if you do live in a rural area and try to get to AWP. It could be completely overwhelming, but it just you could go to the book fair and and, and sort of be reinvigorated by the amazing micropresses out there, you know, and the chat books. And like, it's, it's an incredible reminder of the level of you know, sort of under the radar work that's out there and how amazing it, I remember like buying a chat book from Jenny Zhang and then God, it was like eight years later, I was looking at Oprah and I was like, wait a minute, this bestseller, like this is this, this chick who had this amazing chat book. Cause that's so cool.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I want to wrap up by asking you a question that I always like to ask at the end of these conversations, uh, which we hit it at a little bit with these these discussions about definitions of success, but it's, what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now?
1: God, this is hard to answer seeing that I just dropped my mother at the airport. She was here taking care of my daughter while I was on book tour because my husband was away. And she just doesn't really understand like what I do in life. So on the way to the airport, I told her like, Hey, you know, I was on NPR last week. And she goes, what's that? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Having a little bit more recognition from my family would be good, but creative satisfaction, honestly, for me is having four hours uninterrupted wifi off to dive into a project that I'm not actually, promoting you know something secret something new writing something new that's my creative satisfaction
0: right well it's been a pleasure thank you so much for taking the time absolutely thank you so much for having me and good luck everyone with your your writing project (laughs) thank you bye bye you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at wmfapodcast.com if you enjoyed this episode leave a review on itunes to help new listeners find the show Have a question or author recommendation? Email me at hello at wmfapodcast.com. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at cfballastier or leave a voicemail at 347-685-4836. Today's episode was edited by Andy Cubis. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is part of the Lit Hub Radio Network and is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier LLC. All rights reserved.